Well, good evening, friends. Our reading this evening is from Acts chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Uh, if so, if you want to follow, I'll just give you a moment to find it. Acts chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, when he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered round him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, let's pray that God would speak to us through this. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the scriptures. And uh, we would be asking you to use them in our lives tonight. Come and speak strength and hope to us. And give us a glimpse of what it is that you're doing at the moment and what you want to be doing. Help me as I speak to bring you close. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I spent some time thinking, what shall we study together? What book shall we turn to as we begin this new season? And uh, it, it seemed to me a very obvious choice to turn to the book of Acts. And the reason is this. I like the fact that the book of Acts really starts in lockdown. This is a group of people, a small group of people, who emerge from behind locked doors. And um, for some of us, the recent months have been a bit like that. I've spent more days than I ever wanted to locked behind closed doors, as it were. But also, I don't think it's just me that feels, over the last 18 months or so, newspapers have been pretty depressing. And it seemed easy to ask oneself questions like, where is God in all of this? 
and is the church making any progress at all? And uh, could we make a difference? What's going on? And I think the beginning of the book of Acts is very like that. The uh, followers of Jesus Christ were up against it, weren't they? The, the Romans, who held sway in their day, uh, had just murdered Jesus, their Lord. And they were, in some ways, humanly speaking, they looked down and out. They were a rather insignificant, pathetic group of people, or so it seemed. And this book tells us of how it was that God used these people, worked through them, and they turn out to be absolutely key for everything that he wanted to do and goes on doing. It's a surprising story. And the only reason we're not surprised by it is because we're so familiar with it. So the surprise has vanished. And I was thinking, actually, that's true in so much of Scripture, isn't it? You know, David and Goliath. Someone stands up here and tells you the story of David and Goliath. You're not surprised that David wins. You would be really surprised if he slings the first stone and says, ah, oh, missed. You know, that would surprise you, but it doesn't surprise you that Goliath is slain. But it was surprising, wasn't it, if you were there at the time? We're not surprised when we read about God parting the Red Sea because we've read it so many times, but it, it was surprising. We're not even surprised at Christmas when the kings pitch up to worship a baby. Though some people are surprised to discover that there weren't necessarily three kings. Scripture doesn't say there was. But anyway, the surprise has diminished because we're familiar, but I want you to pinch yourself and to realize as the book of Acts gets going, it's surprising this little group of people would make any difference at all. And yet they do. And we've got more people in this church tonight, small number there we are really, than we're meeting in the upper room. God was with these people. And the book of Acts is a story of God's irrepressible kingdom coming and I'm hoping that over the coming weeks whatever else goes on as we remember that God never changes as the book of Hebrews tells us he is the same yesterday and today and forever his power isn't diminished he's not been taken by surprise by any events in the world I hope that we will reconnect with his commission and reconnect with his hopes for us and our expectation will go up and we'll see God at work and so tonight what the topic is is this before passing go check the essentials that's what we're going to get out of tonight's passage we're going to look at the essentials before passing go there are some things that we need to have in place because if we don't have them in place, uh, we will fail. It's as simple as that. And we'll be open to ridicule and we'll get depressed and um, that's not the way it should be. So someone here tonight, one of people sitting around just looking around, yeah, I can see them. I'm not gonna identify them. But there is someone amongst us tonight who very recently has cycled from one end of his country to the other, from uh, John and Greats down to Land's End. 
And um, I'm quite certain, because I know they succeeded in doing this, um, I'm quite certain they did some planning. I'm quite certain it wasn't a last-minute job. Uh, they got the right equipment. They didn't do it on a Boris bike. Um, and th they knew which roads they were going to go down. It wasn't sort of like, oh, do you fancy going left or right? No, there, there was some route planning there. And, and they bought some special kit. You can't just sort of, um, you know, jump on a bike dressed like I am and think you're going to make it from Land's End to John O'Groats without doing yourself serious injury. You need some special kit as well, and you need to be relatively fit. And they succeeded. But without the essentials in place, it was a, would have been a doomed mission. And sometimes God's family seems to flounder because some of the essentials have gone missing. So tonight, let me provide you a little checklist. And they all come, all the ideas come from uh, the reading you've had, Acts 1, 1 to 11. And I won't be in the least bit offended if I find you looking at your phones or your Bibles because you're checking out what I say is actually there in print. Here's the first thing. This small group of people were convinced that God was still at work. They were convinced that God was still at work. The, the very first verse of the whole of a book of Acts goes like this. In my former book, this is Luke writing, in my former book, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And it's, it's that little phrase that's so telltale, what he began to do. So Luke is alerting us to the fact that when the Gospels came to an end, that was not the end of all that God was going to do. It was just the beginning. It was, it was a bit like a prequel or an overture or an introduction. And the whole of, of the rest of the book of Acts is in that spirit. It's like this is to be continued. I wrote about all that Jesus began to do, and now I'm going to write about what's gone on since his ascension into heaven. And we need that conviction as God's followers if we're going to make any progress for the kingdom at all. Jesus is still going to be at work doing things and teaching. There it is at the very beginning of the book of Acts. And incidentally, this is a New Testament conviction right the way through the New Testament. In Paul's letters, he writes to the Colossians, all over the world, God's kingdom is growing. God's kingdom is continuing to grow. The gospel is growing. And it has been growing ever since he wrote that. Even in London, God's kingdom is growing. And however unlikely it might have seemed to outsiders, this was the conviction that drove the church. And I, I'm pretty sure this is the conviction behind every church leader of a growing church. I was very fortunate in my early days of following Christ. In, in my early days of, of following Christ, I met a man who actually spoke here in this church very often. His name was David Watson. And uh, he wrote an account of his life. And he told of an incident when, as a young clergyman, um, taking charge of his very first church, he, he was given 
a building in the center of York. It was a tiny little church, and it had a congregation of about five. I mean, next to nothing. And um, I, I can't do better than to actually read you exactly what David says in his autobiography. So I'll do it. What are we going to do with you when we close you down? This was the discouraging and unnerving question I was asked on my second full day of, at St. Cuthbert's in York. The questioner was the chairman of the Church Redundancy Commission, who had come with the rest of the commission to consider the future use of this building. I'd only just arrived, and I believed that it had a future as a church. And the commission was already planning its future as a possible museum for York University. Well, I gave the chairman what probably seemed like a typically pious remark from a young clergyman. If anyone comes to this church and preaches the simple gospel of Christ and believes in the power of prayer and trusts in the Holy Spirit, this building will be full in no time. Unconvinced, they gave me one year's grace before, regretfully, they'd have to close some cuspids down. Well, I mention this because I love the fact that he was exactly the same as the leaders in the book of Acts. He just said, when God's on the case, you can expect things to happen. You can expect growth. And actually, that is how the story continued. And uh, within no time at all, a couple of years or so, they outgrew the little church of, of St. Cuthbert's, and they had to take over a place called St. Michael the Belfry. But isn't this your story and my story too? That when you start to follow Christ, you find yourself wrapped up in God's story. And he starts including you and me in his plans to see his kingdom come. That's how it happens. Maybe I had an advantage when I first became a Christian. Because I had had nothing to do with Christianity before. So I hadn't sort of settled into that place which many people settle into where they don't expect anything to happen. I knew uh, no better than to believe what was in the scriptures. I'd been converted from nowhere. I, I just had no previous experience of, of religion. And I read John's gospel. It's a different story, but uh, I'm not going to tell tonight, but I read John's gospel and I became convinced, yeah. Um, Jesus is the Lord and he's, he's the king. And uh, I was 20 years old. I was at Exeter University and none of my friends were Christians because I didn't know any Christians apart from one who had led me to Christ. So I'd been a Christian about a week and I was driving from my house, which was in Dartmoor, over the countryside and um, like all of you when you're driving, my eyes were open, but I was praying as well. I, I was just praying a very simple prayer. Um, now, Lord, um, you and I have only been friends for a week, and I've only read one's gospel, so I don't know that much, but I'm just telling you as I'm driving to Martin's house that um, if you want me to talk about you, I think I'm up for it. Now, you have to understand, that was a very odd thing for me to be doing. I hadn't prayed for 20 years. You know, I had about one week's worth of prayer behind me. Uh, I had never really talked to anyone about God because I'd had no motivation to and no need to. 
if I had talked to anyone about God, it would have been trying to persuade them not to be Christians up to that point. So there we are, <clears throat> get out of the car, and I go into my friend's house, and as is often in university, um, certainly in those days down at Exeter, um, a whole group of friends were there. But what was not so usual is they were watching a television in the middle of the day, and uh, they were watching it because John Lennon had just been shot. It was December the 8th, 1980. And um, very strange, because a thought went into my head from nowhere. Oh, well, they're so busy, there's no way anyone's going to be an opportunity to talk about Christianity. It's not going to happen. And from completely nowhere, one of the, my friends turned around and said, Rupert, are you a Christian? And no one had ever asked me that in my life. And I don't know to this day where that question came from, except that it did come. It was spoken out. Rupert, are you a Christian? And I tried to answer it nonchalantly. I, I thought, you know, come on, Rupert, you said you're, going to, you're prepared to talk. But, you know, maybe there's a way in inflection. So I tried to say, yes. But I tried to say it in such a way as it to say, aren't we all a Christian? I tried to put that kind of emphasis on the yes. And so I said, yes. And, and you know, just... And then another one got up, another one of my friends got up, turned off the television, turned around his seat, and said, well, if you're a Christian, we all want to hear about it. I thought, oh, no. <laughs> but, but this was a, a God moment. This, this was God at work. Do you see, this is why I'm telling this story. This was God at work. You couldn't have engineered that if you tried. This was what the Lord engineered. And now, you know, with the benefit of endless courses on sharing your faith and evangelism, etc. I probably know better the kind of things one ought to say, but I really had no idea what one ought to say. And this other friend said, oh, Rupert, you can't believe in all that kind of stuff, you know. I'm, he said, I, I'm a person who's traveled a lot. In, in my gap year, I've hitchhiked. I've hitchhiked, as a matter of fact, from Afghanistan back to the UK. And um, I've, I've been through loads of religions. They're, they're all, all the same, all much of a muchness. And I said to my friend, Martin, are they? I said, well, I don't know if they are or they're not, but I know who I've decided to follow. I'll tell you what, Martin, you pick your religion, I'll pick mine, and we'll meet next Thursday and we'll have a prayer match. And uh, whoever's prayer God answers will follow that one. I don't know why I said that. It was the most barking mad way to go about evangelism you can possibly imagine. And uh, the next day, I went to the university bookshop and I bought a book, called, a little paperback book, called All Religions of the World. And I put it in an envelope, and I wrote on a postcard, Martin, I bought you this book to make sure that you pick a good one. <clears throat> and we'll meet for supper next Thursday at my house. And whatever it was, Thursday came around, we had a very long supper, because none of us were exactly, neither of us were eager for the prayer contest. And then... Um, we sat there staring at each other, I remember afterwards, I said, okay, Martin, well, come on, spill the beans. Who have you picked? What God are you going to pray to? And he kind of mumbled around and he said, well, I read your book. I think I should follow Jesus, don't you? I said, yeah, good idea. I think that'd be a great thing. So, so we prayed together and he became a Christian. Now, I tell you this story because it encourages me to remember it. But I want us to know God is on the case. God is on the case. 
he, he can move, he can grow his kingdom however he wants. And actually, I don't think my story is in any way peculiar to me. I think uh, many of you will testify exactly the same when I say I've belonged in my life to at least four churches and every single one of them has been a growing church. And the reason is every single one of them have seen people become followers of Jesus Christ. Why? Because they were places of faith. They were places where God dwelt. They were places where God made a difference in people's lives. They were places where the Holy Spirit was allowed to move. They were places where people preached from the scriptures. There were places like this place where the conviction was God is still at work. That is an essential part of what we believe and stand for. God is still at work. On my um, bookcase at home, I've got a collection of books and they've all got the same title, kind of volume one, two, three, four, and I think at least four, and it's called The God Who Changes Lives. And actually you can pick these books up for next to nothing on eBay. Um, and they're wonderful stories of God changing lives. And that title tells us a lot. It's not the God who used to change lives, it's the God who still changes lives. Well, I'm going to move on. So there were people convinced that God is still at work. Secondly, they were people convinced that Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. This is in verse 3. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Verse 3. And in some ways, this is the strangest, most surprising, and most significant claim ever, isn't it? And it accounts in so many ways for how it is that this small group of people were so extraordinarily brave and courageous and couldn't be shut up. They couldn't be bullied out of sharing their faith. And their message was every bit as surprising and countercultural then as it is now. Because, as we're told, they were convinced, they were given many convincing proofs that satisfied them that Jesus had risen from the dead. Now, I think they needed, and we need many convincing proofs. And the reason I say that is it's such a large fact. Our lives depend upon it. You know, part of the job of being a, a clergy person, which is not great, I must say, is when you take funerals. Well, I, I don't find it great. And the reason I don't find it great is because it's so final. And, and it, it's sort of a place where, you know, there's, there's a body in a box. And what people believe at that point really matters. And in our, in our culture, we kind of push this into the wings. But it's, it, it's stark to see those who actually believe that the resurrection is real and that Jesus gives everlasting life and those who are living without that. It, it really, really matters. And why did they believe this? Well, it's a composite case. I'm not going to run through the whole thing. I'm not trying to persuade you what I know you, you believe. But what I'm trying to say is this buttressed their courage as they went out and reached out. And it wasn't that they read six books that said, this is why you believe in the resurrection. It, it was a composite case, many things coming together. Sometimes it was a physical encounter with the risen Lord that he just appeared in their midst. Sometimes it was that they ate breakfast with him. Sometimes he seemed to read their thoughts and said, look, touch me. 
I'm real, I'm here in the flesh. Ghosts don't eat, do they? He said to them. They just knew, they, they knew in their knower the Lord reigns and is alive. Now when you know that, then you will be bold. When you know that, you're not afraid of anything. Because you know the biggest problem in the world, what happens at death, has been dealt with. Well, I'm going to move on, because I can see a few fidgeting and I don't want you to get bored. That they were not only convinced, they were commissioned. Do you see this in, in the passage? They were commissioned. They were sent out with a message. At the end of Matthew's gospel, we're told they were to go into all the world and make disciples. And actually, I, I was so helped by a talk I heard in this church about justice, the master's master plan. Jesus' master plan, which is played out in Acts, is this. That we're commissioned to make disciples who will make disciples, who will make disciples. Someone must have taken you under their wing and, and taught you the basics of how to grow spiritually. They were fueling you, they were equipping you to run a good race. And that's our task together. We are to help others come to know Jesus and then to equip them to help other people, to make disciples who will make disciples who will make disciples. And I'm always so disappointed when I hear church leaders share a vision which isn't that. I, I read a, a biography of a previous Archbishop of Canterbury, and I'm not going to tell you which one. But he wasn't that recent, but he was in my lifetime. And they asked him what his main mission was. And he said, the chief mission of the Church of England is the maintenance of tranquility. And I thought, no, absolutely not. It, it, it just isn't. Uh, I uh, interviewed another church leader not so very long ago. And I asked them, what do you want to be remembered for as the bishop of XYZ? And they replied, I want to be remembered as a safe pair of hands. Well, shoot me now. I mean, that, that isn't what Jesus said. That is not what Jesus said, I'm calling you to me so that you can be a safe pair of hands. No, he, he, he commissions us to make disciples who will make disciples. And this, this little group at the beginning of the book of Acts, they were clear about their commission. They have their marching orders. Are you clear about the commission? Because we need to be. We need to be if we're going to cut any ice at all. So they're not only convinced and they're not only commissioned, they're also empowered. They're empowered by the Holy Spirit. It, it's not just that they believed what Jesus said. They encountered the, the risen Lord. They experienced his presence. And I think this actually lies at the heart of people coming into God's kingdom and it always has done because of the way we think in the UK because of our kind of education it's very possible actually for preachers to turn listeners into a kind of Christian tadpoles where you know tadpoles have just huge heads and very little else and it it might be the case that you think a good sermon 
is to be sent off stacked full of new information. I don't think that's what a good sermon is or a good church is, actually. There is information in a good sermon, but it's to draw us into the presence of a living God. Very few of us come to faith just by facts. I want to tell you a, a story to illustrate this. Um, I, I belonged to one particular church many, many years ago, which was really good at biblical preaching and um, sharing facts. And I went on a holiday where they were kind enough to invite me on a holiday with them, a group of about 120 people. Again, I was in my early 20s. And um, it was all about sharing your faith. The thing that I found interesting was I'd just come back from attending a conference in which the emphasis of sharing your faith was the reality of an encounter with God. So I was sitting through these very kind of word-heavy talks about, um, well, lots of very interesting things, but I thought I'd do my own little experiment. So every day I invited myself onto other people's uh, afternoon activities. I was there as a single man, and they were mostly families. And, um, you know, Christians are very nice generally. And so if you say, I'm doing nothing this afternoon, can I join you? They'll generally say yes, because you've got them slightly cornered. And um, I went on this long walk with, with his family. And I asked the man, who, who was a businessman from somewhere in the north of the country, I asked him, how did you become a Christian? And he came up with a perfectly good answer, but it, it was, I thought, to my mind, rather textbook. You know, it was something like, something like, well, um, I, I was living a perfectly happy life, and then I realized I was a sinner, so I discovered Jesus died on the cross for me, and I decided to follow him. And there was nothing wrong with what he said. I mean, it's factually correct. But I said, um, rather naughtily, looking him in the face, uh, is that all? And he said, well, what do you mean, is that all? And I said, well, I I'm always really quite interested in hearing if stories where God himself makes a difference to someone in their lives. And did anything else lie behind your becoming a follower of Christ? And it was, it was strange because I watched this man, and I guess he, he probably was in his 40s. I watched him go silent, and then I watched him go red, then I watched him look at the ground, and then I saw him sort of take a deep breath and then he shared this story and to me this is like one of the most amazing stories I've heard but it was obviously deeply personal he said well Rupert as you pushed me and you asked you're making me remember that actually something did happen and he said this is what happened he said um, I was going out with someone at the time who was a strong Christian and I was not a Christian and to my bemusement and horror and one evening they, they explained to me that our relationship had to stop because I was not going down the same path as them and I was destroying their faith effectively and it just had to stop and they, that was that. And he said, I was furious, absolutely furious. So he said, I went home and I got down from the top shelf the big family Bible and it had a lot of dust on it and stuff. And I got down the big Bible and I blew off the dust and I slammed it down. And he said, and I said, God, if you're there, I want to meet a vicar. And you have to be desperate to pray that prayer. <laughs> but he did, he did, that's what he prayed. 
And he said, the next day, I had to go on a very long train journey. And uh, he said, I was minding my own business. I got in, into um, the train. I think it was in the days when trains actually had compartments. And, um, and he said, we're sitting there, and there are a few people in this uh, train compartment. It's a long journey. And the man opposite me is reading a newspaper. And I have forgotten to bring a newspaper. So I say to him, um, can I borrow your newspaper when you're finished with it? He says, yes, of course you can. And um, he said, one thing leads, leads to another. And we get chatting, and he says to me, what are you doing on this journey? And I say, oh, I'm going up here on business. And uh, I say to him, what are you doing on this journey? And he, he looks at me and he says, well, I don't really know what I'm doing on this journey. But last night, um, I, I was praying. You see, I'm a vicar, and I was praying. And I felt God said, you must catch this train from X to X, and um, this is the particular train you're to get. So I don't know why, but that's what I've done. And the fellow telling me the story said, I was so shocked I just got out at the next stop. <laughs> he, he never even told the poor vicar chap. He's probably still on the train up to Edinburgh or wherever it was. And, and the fellow telling me the story just said, you know, so yes, Rupert, there was more to it than, than I told you before. And friends, as, as we pray together, empowered by the Holy Spirit, these kind of things are going to happen. In, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And it's often said the whole of the book of Acts is acts of the Holy Spirit through people. In fact, you know, I, I'm sure um, this isn't new to the life of St. Michael's, but it's encouraging that I can share with you just a couple of stories of, of even just over recent weeks. You know, a few weeks ago, a couple came into the church and they met me on the way out and they said, we don't know really why we're here this morning. We, we usually worship in a different church in that sort of neck of the woods, but we felt we ought to be here and we've really felt the presence of the Lord. That, that's God at work. I heard this morning about um, someone sitting just in the area over there, one regular member of the congregation who previously uh, had been married to a diplomat, spent time in Persia and speaks Persian. And at the end of the service, they turned to the person they were sitting near, who was here for the first time, found that they were Persian speaking, and they had a conversation in that language. I, I think that's God at work. It, it, you know, the chances of that happening is really pretty slim. Some, sometimes I, I have read books about you know, really prominent, eminent, Christians who have done absolutely remarkable things through the power of the Holy Spirit and they've had books written about them and it, it can be a slightly misleading because you kind of feel to yourself well I'll never be one of those and you're right probably you and I will not but when I think back the people that have often impacted me most and have been every bit as effective will never have a book written about them but their faithful life from day to day empowered by the Spirit, has really, really made a difference. It, it can be as simple a thing as hospitality, that they've gone out of their way to be friendly to people they didn't even know. It can be generosity. I know of a whole church community that was transformed through the generosity of a small group of people. Because the people 
saw what was going on and they just said, this has to be God at work. This isn't just everyday generosity. This is the Lord's generosity. When I, when I think back to um, 17 years of living in Cambridge, I think back to one incident that actually most encouraged me as, as just Rupert the individual. And it was a time when um, I was going through quite a challenging time. My mother was dying of cancer and I was spending a lot of time commuting to London to visit her in hospital. And um, I was severely challenged by this. I, well, who wouldn't be? And I just remember one particular day, I, I was walking down the road on my way to work and a fellow on a bicycle um, came alongside me and took his helmet off and I, and I recognized him. Uh, he is a man who is a professor in America and in Cambridge, and not just a professor of music, but also a professor of theology, and has qualifications, you know, kind of six lines of qualifications, I'll say. But what impressed me actually was this. He said, hi, Rupert, how are you? And I said, um, well, not good at all, actually. You know, I'm, I'm finding life very, very challenging. We had a very short conversation, and he got off his bike, and he leant it up against the wall, and he put down his helmet and said, well, we just got to pray together. And he prayed, he just prayed, put his hand on my shoulder and he prayed a very, very simple and a very kind and a very effective prayer. And then he said, if it's anything I can do to help, I'd love to do it. And later on that day, I thought, well, there is actually, uh, I could ring him up and see if he could preach for me on Sunday and that would free me up to go and visit in London again. And so I rang him up and that's what he did. And I share this because, you know, it's everyday life. It's, it's within anyone's grasp, really, to reach out and help like that. But I think that was a Holy Spirit moment. I'm still remembering that uh, years later. And when I look at that man, in fact, when I left Cambridge, I, I wrote to him and said, when I think of you, I, I know that when most people think of you, they think of you as professor of this, this, and this, and this. But I will always remember you for five minutes of kindness on Grange Road. The Holy Spirit could prompt you and me any time, if you'll let him. Well, as I conclude, I'm going to draw our attention to something you might miss in this passage. You not only need to be really equipped before you pass go, there's something else that they do too. I wonder if you noticed it, that Jesus says to them, before they go out, before they go anywhere, there to wait. Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised. And uh, it's so tempting to pass go without doing this. But we're asked to do this. Before you leave Jerusalem, wait. Before we rush off to conquer the world, <laughs> or your community, or your street, or your house, Wait, wait on the Lord. That means being patient in his presence. I think it means stopping to think about what it is you think that God wants us to be doing. I've been painting, sketching this picture, hoping that in doing so I'm beginning to lift our eyes up to see what could be possible. But we have to wait on the Lord and say, well, Lord, how is this ever going to happen? 
we need the power and help of your Holy Spirit. And, and as far as I'm concerned, what I, I do is, is I ask the Lord, Lord, I'm waiting, hoping for your help. And I quite often pray a very, very simple prayer as a leader of this church. I just say, Lord, St. Michael's is your church. Not my church, it's your church. And not that you need it, but you do have my permission to do anything you want to anyone you want, any time you want, any way you want. Come Holy Spirit. And um, I think that's the safest thing I can do for you and the best thing I can do for you. And it's a wonderful thing for us to do together. You up for that? Good. <laughs> Let, let's pray together and then I'll describe what we'll do next. But let's, let's have a moment of just quiet. And I'll say nothing and we, just, we will wait upon the Lord. And I invite you just to ask the Lord in this space to speak to you, to reveal something of himself to you. Now, I think it's quite possible that if we were very honest with ourselves, some of us <clears throat> would have to admit that over the last 18 months or so, and lockdown and being cut off from one another and this sort of thing has actually helped us rather to go dormant in what we're hoping for. Sort of survival mode has, has led us to retreat. And maybe even the thought of God still being at work has sort of gone into hibernation for a bit. That would be very understandable, but I think we should take a moment and just stop and say in, in the silence, just say to the Lord, Lord, I, I'm sorry about that. Thank you for reminding me that you're still at work. You're not a God of maintenance or a God who goes missing. You are a very present help in trouble. You are a God who plans our good plans. And Lord, we, we pray together for ourselves and for each other that you would call us back into your team and you would convince us again through many convincing proofs that you're alive and you're at work. And we say to you, we, we want to see your hand moving amongst us here at St. Michael's. In Jesus' name, amen.